for Tuesday, February 9th, 2021. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, for the last year, a team at The Atlantic has been gathering and sharing coronavirus data. Now they're getting ready to shut down their COVID tracking project. Eventually, most places should do that and let the government do this work and make sure there's one data set that everyone kind of agrees on. And, and I think all, all of that stuff, I actually think, is a necessary component of getting back to uh, normal public health infrastructure. Alexis Madrigal, staff writer at The Atlantic and co-founder of the project, joins me to discuss the decision to step away from data gathering. That's next. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. In the early days of the pandemic, good federal data on the spread of the coronavirus was hard to come by. That inspired a team at The Atlantic to build out their own resource on testing, cases, and hospitalizations, the COVID Tracking Project. It's one of many non-government sources for coronavirus data, but it will soon shut down. Here with me to discuss that decision is co-founder of the project, Alexis Madrigal. Alexis, thanks for talking with me. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So to start, I'm wondering if you can tell me the origin story of the COVID tracking project. This is something you've been working on for about a year now. How did it come about? Yeah. So, you know, in the early days of the pandemic, let's talk about February of 2020. You know, we knew that COVID was beginning to spread around the world. um, But in the United States, we didn't have a lot of confirmed cases. And the Trump administration was saying at the time that, you know, "Ah, there's just like a few cases. And, you know, we started to get really curious about that at The Atlantic, you know, how many actually people had been tested. And so we started to look around and realized that the CDC actually wasn't publishing those numbers. And I remember exactly where I was standing, standing in my kitchen of my house here in Oakland, California, and my longtime friend and colleague, a guy named Rob Meyer, called me up and was like, imagine that we're in New Orleans on the Army Corps of Engineer beat, and we know Katrina is coming. You know, like, what would we be doing? We have to do something. And um, Rob actually came up with this idea of like, well, what if we just like went to every state's website and called every state and said, like, well, how many people can you test? How many people have you tested? And so we published a story 
that showed that less than 2,000 people had been tested by March 6th of last year, which meant basically no one had been tested, which is why there were no cases in the United States. We now know, with the benefit of hindsight, that, in fact, hundreds of thousands or even millions of people were infected by that point. And that's kind of how we got going. And so how do you go from that kind of germ of an idea to putting something so comprehensive together? I mean, I, I can imagine this was a kind of massive undertaking. When we published the story, about an hour later, I got an email from a friend of mine I've known since I was 18, who actually was an early employee of Facebook and ended up building a bunch of data systems there. And he said, you know, hey, did you use my spreadsheet for this? And it turned out that he had actually been doing the exact same thing that we did. You know, his name's Jeff Hammerbacher. He's a data scientist. You know, within a few more hours, we had brought on one of Robinson's great friends, a woman named Aaron Kassane, who became another co-founder and now the co-leader of the project with me. And we literally just kind of snapped it together out of these long-term friendships of people who just turned out had become equally obsessed. And then we brought on volunteers and eventually brought on funding and started to pay people who were managing those volunteers. And it became something that, you know, something at our last count, 400 people have actually contributed uh, to the data set. You know, we've raised a million and a half dollars from different foundations, and that money has basically all gone just to paying the people who are running those data shifts and cleaning the data and figuring out what to do and building the data systems. And it all really did come together in that in that first week of March. The data systems and the processes were all kind of been the same this whole time. Walk me through a day in the life of this project. What kind of calls are made? Who are y'all reaching out to? What does kind of a typical day look like? Well, I think, you know, specifically related to getting the data into the machine, there's basically three different teams that work on that. One is a data entry team, um, which does a shift. So that means, you know, there's all these people who go to state websites by hand, check things out, compare it to things we've collected with computers. Then there's double checkers who check their work and there's a shift lead checks their work because it actually turns out that the hardest thing isn't going to a website and picking a number and putting it into a spreadsheet. The hardest thing is having the people all make the same decision. You know, yesterday, five days ago, three months ago. And so there's an incredible amount of documentation that's required. Then there's a data quality team which is kind of running in the background, looking at things through time, doing deep research projects into the meaning of these different numbers. Because one of the key problems in the United States is that each state reports slightly differently. So there's 56 states and territories all have slight wrinkles in the way that they report. And we have to know what those all are so that we can stitch together a national data set. And then there's an outreach and reporting team, which is constantly in touch with states when we come up against dead ends in the research process to say, so, you know, when you report this number of deaths, like, what does that mean? Are you using death certificates to ascertain that? Are you this deaths among people who've tested positive for COVID-19? You know, there's all these different definitional problems in, in the work that we do. And there are teams that just basically, you know, we've made hundreds and hundreds of contacts with state officials to nail those things down. You bring up something there, which I think that people who don't work with data don't understand, which is that there is not a lot of consistency, even in, say, a state over time. I know the state of Georgia has kind of had some shifting definitions for some of these metrics that they share on their website. I'm only imagining how much more complex that is when you're dealing with dozens and dozens of different reporting systems. How have y'all been able to maintain any kind of consistency with these numbers that you're tracking, understanding that the, the landscape is potentially shifting a lot? 
One answer is we haven't been able to. Um, one answer is the federal government is the only place that can conceivably even smooth out some of these standardizations. The other answer is we just keep trying. You know, we contact state officials, come to understand everything we can about what these systems actually look like. Because one of the key problems is sometimes a state is withholding information for various reasons, some of them may be good and some of them bad. In other cases, their data systems just cannot output the thing that we would like to have that would be most comparable to what other states are providing. And, you know, it's different in every state. Like literally every state, you know, has its own set of ratings. We actually have a team we call state grades that grades the comprehensiveness and quality of the data streams from each state for each metric. And it's a little bit too arcane to get into like the individual differences between states, but they're vast. You mentioned some states are not very open with their data. I mean, what are some common dead ends that y'all would run into and, and how would y'all overcome them? I know even here in Georgia that reporters like myself have had issues getting data that we want from, from our state. The thing that is usually the most clear are the hospitalization data. Hospitalizations, we pretty much know what each state is reporting. Um, we know how it compares to what the federal government has, and it's a fairly smooth and consistent data stream. Tests are at the other end of the spectrum. You know, tests have been extremely difficult for states to figure out. And the reason is this. For some laboratories, they send things electronically to the state and everything kind of moves smoothly. You know, particularly the bigger places work like that. For some of the smaller testing places, you know, out in community clinics or doctor's offices and things like that, they're just not used to reporting that stuff and they don't have built-in electronic systems. So there are sometimes there are still fax machines involved. There are just lots of problems with testing, you know, the further you get away from like a big academic hospital or a major laboratory. And so that's really been the crucial thing. And it's something like the positivity rate, say, right, which many states have used um, as key threshold numbers for opening their states or allowing visitors from other places, things like that. Those are tied to the number of tests that have been done, right? <laughs> because the positivity rate requires that denominator, requires the total number of tests so that you have, you can compare it to the number of positive tests. And what that really means is that there's this kind of squishiness in that number and it means different things in, in different places. And so we've really worried about that through time, particularly in states that are using it as kind of a hard threshold rather than, you know, one number among many that scientists and policymakers can use to guide their decisions. Undergirding this decision to do this work was, like you mentioned, a lack of a real federal resource for all this data. I mean, talk to me a little bit about that and, and how that's changed over time, because certainly in the early days, there was a lack of a lot of these resources. But even during the Trump administration, you know, I think it's fair to say agencies like the CDC did get better at this, at sharing this data. Yeah. I mean, I think you've kind of got two intermingled problems here. I mean, one was the Trump administration did not always want the numbers to go out. In fact, we know for a fact that they had all kinds of numbers that they uh, kept from, from becoming public until um, after Trump lost the election. The other thing is that these are complicated, difficult problems to solve. And in fact, you know, even in cases where the agencies were allowed to work to full capacity, you know, we weren't able to produce the kinds of data that other countries have. And it was kind of embarrassing, I think, you know, the U.S. had been considered to be 
the most prepared country in the world for a pandemic. And that turned out to definitely not be the case. And a major reason why is that our data systems are so decentralized and of varying quality from different places. Now, that said, through time, it is true that people working within the federal government between the CDC and HHS, that's the Department of Health and Human Services, you know, it's sort of the agency that contains the CDC, working together across all these different components of that place, they were able to put together better and better data, just working at it. I mean, these systems, as, as anyone who has had to, you know, fill out new paperwork or do, you know, new reporting in their job knows, these data systems can sometimes have problems. They require troubleshooting and that, and, and it's really when you see data, it's the end result of a process. It's not just like sitting there on the ground of reality and you pick it up and put in a spreadsheet. It actually requires a process and that process usually needs to be iterative so that you can continue improving it. And I think that one key piece of continuity between the Trump administration and the Biden administration is this improving data quality. And it's um, it's one of those things that, you know, it's not perfect yet. And it won't be probably because of all the problems that we've been talking about. But it is just substantially better than when we got going in February and March. This is Did You Wash Your Hands? I'm Sam Whitehead talking today with Alexis Madrigal. He's a staff writer at The Atlantic and co-founder of its COVID tracking project. We're talking about the decision to bring that project to an end. And I think that is a natural transition into your decision and the Atlantic's decision to start to ramp down this project. Talk with me a little bit about how y'all came to the decision to kind of walk away from this effort. Yeah. So every few months, we would check in with ourselves and say, like, has the federal data gotten to a place and have we gotten to an understanding of the state and federal data where we could stop this data collection? And most importantly, you know, the federal government is the place that should be doing this. We've said that literally, like in the very first thing we ever published calling for volunteers was like, hey, when the feds get to a place where they can do this, then we're out. And we think we're at that place. And we also think that over the next few months of the project, as we wind things up, we can switch to really this accountability mode where we really lean on the Fed to clean up the last pieces and last problems that they have in these data sets. And I think that that's kind of where the most leverage for us is at this point. Like we've kind of come to the end of the road for improving state level data so that we can stitch it into this national data set. And now we want to devote all of that research and, and brain power on to improving these federal data sets. We know that there's people inside the federal government that we can work with as well as cajole and lean on and anything else we need to do. And we also know that there are insoluble problems working at the, the state level the way we have been. What is the plan for what's going to happen with all this data? I mean, this is data that The Atlantic has made publicly available. I imagine that's going to continue to remain public for people to kind of dive back into these numbers from the past. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we have we're currently cooking up the plans for archiving the project and providing, you know, long term data access, particularly because, you know, a lot of what we have done has been trying to understand what, what people call the metadata, you know, the stuff that tells you how to interpret the data that you're looking at. And we think that's extremely important for people to understand what was known at the time. You know, o over time, what's going to happen is better and better numbers will come out, more and more complete numbers will come out from states and things will look smoother and smoother as time goes on. And we think this data set is actually an extremely important way of understanding 
how people were making decisions at the time, knowing what they knew at the time. And we, you know, we'll have it in a library somewhere. The websites will remain. The data will be archived in all kinds of places. Um, and we'll continue doing the things that we've been doing all along, which have been trying to show kind of by example how to be massively transparent with a data set like this that has many, many quirks. And hopefully one thing people take from it through time is that all data sets actually have similar issues. Some of them are much cleaner than what we have for, for COVID in all the states. But there's always, always, always these kinds of issues um, with data. And I hope that people increase their data literacy and, and think critically about how data is produced, not just um, what it looks like on a chart. I know we're still early days into the Biden administration, but are there already things that you've seen that you think might be blind spots, things that they need to work on more when it comes to gathering and, and sharing data? You know, on the good side, they have immediately put out some things which the Trump administration had held back. That kind of made, made sense to me. I think the downside is that I think the Biden administration would like to return to the status quo where the CDC was sort of this undisputed um, um, champion pandemic fighter. And I think that there's actually going to be some real problems with that. The CDC turned out not to be able to produce some of the things that were needed because of long-term starving of funding of that agency, maybe some of the things within the culture of the agency through time. And there's so many, so many brilliant people at the CDC. I think that's just indisputed. But maybe the role of that agency is changing. And I think people really need to think hard about where the responsibility for this data production should lie within the, the broader HHS system. Um, so I think that's, that's one of the things that, that worries me is just people want to return to normalcy. And I want to make sure that the CDC and HHS more broadly have the capacity to actually do the job. Certainly there were examples during the Trump administration of political appointees interfering with public health messaging of the administration, not wanting numbers to get out. But America's public health infrastructure has been underfunded for years and years. And certainly during the Trump administration, these problems have long roots and are, are big. Yes, 100%. I mean, I think hopefully this is a chance for us to think about the system of public health that we have developed in this country, which for a long time was celebrated by everyone around the world and has now been exposed as somewhat hollow, actually, by a quite difficult situation. And so hopefully we can think about this again <laughs> and, and rebuild the system of public health so that it can again be a world-leading agency. I know The Atlantic, you know, is not the only organization that did a lot of work to gather this data. You know, places like The New York Times worked on similar projects. People may be familiar with the work that happened at Johns Hopkins University and their COVID data tracker. I mean, this is an isolated project that y'all are working on. Do you think that all of these independent organizations, non-government organizations doing this work has kind of proved the point that maybe you were setting out to prove that like this data needs to be out there and the government's not doing a good enough job providing it? Yeah, I think the external data groups have had a huge impact in this pandemic. I mean, exactly the ones that you mentioned, USA Facts as well. At the same time, I think it's worth not falling in love with having this data come from outside the government. <laughs> you know, there are things the government can do, the federal government, that nobody else can. 
And we, we can't forget that. And that's really where this should be happening. And we should be working on the outside in the interpretation of that data and understanding what it means and, and all the kinds of projects that uh, we have worked on outside of data collection at the COVID tracking project. Our project always had two components, right? We were gathering this data, but we were also fierce critics of what it actually looked like. And I think we, every data project needs to remember that second role that they have, because I think one of the dangers right now is as the feds really step up their game, people need to make the case for themselves to stick around. You know, they've got funding tied to it. They've got, you know, they're just, they're, they're central right now in the the world. And it's, it's hard to make the decision to responsibly spin down. But I think eventually most places should do that and let the government do this work and make sure there's one data set that everyone kind of agrees on. And, and I think all, all of that stuff, I actually think is a necessary component of getting back to uh, normal public health infrastructure. Has your perspective on, on data, the, the value of data changed from working on this project? Hmm. By real research interests and background are in science and technology studies, which is always kind of saying data is at the end of a production process, not the beginning, right? I mean, science and technology studies is one of its key insights um, is, you know, you shouldn't take data at face value. You should understand the processes that produce it, et cetera, et cetera. And I would say that it has strengthened my conviction um, in, in that and it has also made me deeply worry about how charismatic charts can be, how much people believe things that are presented as data, even if they have no idea the quality of that data or how to interpret it or where it came from. I feel like you almost need something like um, there was that you know, movement in food to really understand, you know, hey, where's this coming from? You know, like uh, from the farm to the, you know, to the table, you kind of need the same thing here, right? Like you need sort of from the field to the chart, you know, you need to understand all those things if you really want to um, know what's happening. And I think, you know, it's a hard thing to tell people because, of course, everyone just is like, hey, give me the data. I just want to understand what the data says so I know how to make a decision. And I kind of think it's more like, well, you need the data process. <laughs> um, and, um, and, and in order to do that, you don't just need people who know numbers. You need people who understand systems and bureaucracies and um, economic incentives and companies and all the things that actually lead to these systems that eventually end up as a, a chart that you're looking at on Twitter. Alexis Madrigal is a staff writer at The Atlantic and co-founder of the COVID Tracking Project. Did You Wash Your Hands is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. WABE's managing editor is Alex Helmick. Scott Wolfel is chief content officer. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app. That's where you can also leave us a rating and a review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org slash coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. 
But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.